Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover of yours, truly Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a musical legend. If you know anything about music, especially from Philadelphia, you know this man's work behind the scenes and in front. We're going to get into all that and more current projects with the one, the only, the great Mr. Dexter Wanzel. Mr. Wanzel, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Thank you for having me, Jarrell. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So we're going to start off with a fun question and then dive in. So best cheesesteak spot in Philly? Oh, that's a good question. I like the place at 4th and South. But a lot of people like Pats or Geno's. <laughs> yeah, typically Pats and Geno's is like the tourist stop. But like I tell people, you got to know what you want ahead of time. Don't be lollygagging because you have people behind you giving the Philadelphia salute, if you know what I mean, if you're not quick with your order. Right. Right. Now, I, 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 like, I like the cheesesteak at 4th and South. Fourth and South, and you could tell them that Dexter Wanzel sent you, and maybe the owner probably hook you up with a nice little discount or something. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, anyways, try it and uh, let them know what you think. So let's jump right into it. So where were you born, and how did you get your start in the music industry? I was born in Bryn Mawr, PA, and I got my start um, as a playing the flute and the cello uh, in the seventh grade. Um, where I went to junior high, started junior high school. Uh, that's really how I got my start. And then by the time I got to the ninth grade, me and my best friend, um, Stanley Clark, who's a bass player, we started our first little groups together. Our first group was called the Speakers. And we, <laughs> you know, I was playing guitar and he was playing bass. And, um, uh, and it sort of progressed from there. And I was playing at cello with the all city uh, all philadelphia senior orchestra and i was taking master classes at settlement but i dropped out of high school and wound up going into the army where i continued playing so a few uso shows and i had picked up keyboards and stuff like that while i was still in school uh, then when i got out of out of the service i um started hanging out at Sigma Sound Recording Studios in 1971, trying to get a, you know, keyboard session uh, if I could. And um, that's how it started. Uh, the, uh, one of the engineers asked me if I knew anything about a Putney synthesizer. And I told him, well, I can give it a try, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I actually was able to start to get sounds out of their Putney and did sessions credited and uncredited also i met al perlman who who um created the uh, arp synthesizer um and he sent me a, a arp 2600 back in 1973 74 something like that and i was using it i had joined a couple of groups by then yellow sunshine and instant funk and uh, i had started using it on some projects that i was doing there and then of course once i signed with philly international uh they had me do albums under my own name but nonetheless i was primarily signed there as a uh, arranger producer composer and i did that off and on until the year 2000 literally 
Oh, wow. And then also upon doing my research, I saw you also got your start as an errand boy under Georgie Woods. Is that correct? Oh, that's when I was a kid. Yeah. From 1958 to 63, 64, I was the backstage gopher, little, little errand boy at the Uptown Theater. Uh, my step uncle was Georgie Woods. My stepfather is Clinton Woods, was Clinton Woods. Um, so I used to work all the shows there at the Uptown. Uh, Doc Bagby. Um, who was the music director there early on, showed me my first chords on the organ. So you're right about that. You know, I did have an earlier start than, than the cello in junior high school and stuff. And the Uptown is really the basis of my music foundation because I worked every show for years there, you know, from the first Motortown Review to the Ike and Tina Turner reviews, the King Records tour, that King Records tour where James Brown and the Famous Flames were the headliners, you know, and um, there were other great groups that I worked with and the impressions. And actually a funny story is, is that um, when uh, uh, I worked with the impressions, I was like eight or nine years old. Jerry Butler and the two other brothers were still with the impressions, but uh, then he left and had his own solo career. And then when I was signed at PIR as a producer, writer, you know, um, arranger, uh, Kenny walked him into my office and said, let me introduce you to Dexter. Um, he's working here now. And um, uh, I want him to come up with something for you. And Jerry looked at me and I looked at him and he said, Dexter, you still ain't combing your hair? Because, <laughs> you know, I had a wild bush back then, you know. But he remembered me from the Uptown Theater, you know, so did a lot of other artists, you know, um, um, uh, throughout my career. Right. And Georgia. So you're right about the Uptown. Yes, sir. And the Uptown Theater, I believe, was akin to what the Apollo is to Harlem or the the Regal Theater in Chicago or the Fox Theater in Detroit. Exactly. Exactly. It was where black artists could go, not just for a, a one night show or a weekend, but where they would go and stay anywhere from 10 to 14 days. They would be there at those theaters performing night after night. They'd have matinee shows on Saturday and midnight shows on Saturday, you know? And it was, um, it was just an unbelievable experience. I mean, I got to meet some of the great jazz artists, Lord Fauntleroy, who was a jazz DJ, had jazz shows there. So I got to meet people like Dizzy Gillespie and Art Blakey and, um uh miles davis and it, it was just amazing working there yeah and this was back in the days when radio had quadraphonic sound the echoes in the mics and they'd be like this saturday performing at the regal is blah blah, blah exactly blah 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 <laughs> tickets are five dollars four dollars at the door go to jimmy's record mart to get your tickets now while you're probably listening to either wdas or what that's right. That's right. It was WDAS or HAT where Jimmy Bishop, Georgie Woods, Lord Fauntleroy were all DJs at those stations, you know. And I worked that first Motortown review. And what um, Shorty Long had me do was he had me stand in the wings of, of the stage and hold hold Stevie's hands, Stevie Wonder's hands, because we was both little boys, you know. <laughs> he said, here, hold Stevie's hand, you know. And then Shorty would come and take him out on stage and put him behind the drums. And that's how he started his part of the show, you know, Stevie. And I worked with Stevie later on and we used to talk about it. You know, I did the arrangements 
he was doing a project on Jermaine Jackson. So I flew out to LA to write the arrangements for Stevie uh, for his uh, Jermaine Jackson album, Let's Get Serious. So I wrote um, uh, Where Are You Now? And uh, the horns for Let's Get Serious and all that, all the, anything you hear orchestral wise on that album, I did. Wow. And I was curious, did you have any interactions with the late Dick Clark? And for those of you that don't know, American Bandstand originated in Philadelphia. American Bandstand, I only, I only went there one time uh, uh, while he was there at 46. The, uh, the, the building he worked out of was at 46 in Market. But I only went there that one time and we went there uh, with Yellow Sunshine. I went there and but it that's all I, I can tell you about that. I didn't really meet him. We went there, we stood up on the pedestals and did our song, uh, Yellow Sunshine, and and uh, that was it. <laughs> right, so, so brief interaction with Mr. Clark and also the dance show, Dancing on Air, was based out of Philadelphia, later got reformed to Dance Party USA, and that was where Kelly Ripper got her start. Now you have indie labels such as, based out of Philly, such as Arctic, and Cameo Parkway. Can you talk about the influence of those labels in and around the Philadelphia song, sound in addition with uh, Philly International with Gamble and Huff? Well, well, the one label I'm very familiar with, and there were numerous labels there, you know, uh, Philly Groove was there uh, also, uh, but Cameo Parkway was important. And believe it or not, 309 South Broad was where Gamble and Huff started their businesses after they left what they were doing in New York. They started their business there at uh, at 250 South Broad. And then when Cameo Parkway uh, down the block decided to, to sell that building that they were in, Gamble and Huff bought it. And, and Cameo Parkway had some of the great artists like um, a Chubby Checker they had with the twist. And of course, Dee Dee Sharp's Mashed Potatoes and so it's just, it was a pr pretty historic building. And then, of course, Gamble and Huff went in there and turned it into uh, Gamble Records and then turned it into Philadelphia International Records back in 1973, I'm pretty sure. Um, I, I had just joined um, um, Yellow Sunshine, and it was one of the first albums off of Philadelphia International Records. Wow. Now, you mentioned earlier the Putney and the ARP 2600. Was there a difference between the two synthesizers as opposed to the Moog? And also, was this uh, pre-MIDI? Oh, of course it was pre-MIDI, you know? <laughs> because what you had to do was you had to patch in the oscillators with the ADSRs, with the sine waves, you know, with chords. And the, uh, the Putney not, had knobs the 2600 had chords where it, it's sort of like what the early moogs were, you know, where you had to patch each module together with chords. And the ARP 2600 was the same way, but it was in a suitcase. It was like in a big box suitcase that you would open up and the chord panels would be here and the knobs would be there and the keyboard would be right here. Now the Putney had uh, just uh, uh, where the knobs were here and it had these little sticks uh, that you had to put in the holes to change the sounds, to get different sounds on it. You know what I'm saying? You know, like if you, uh, the little games that you play where you put the yellow and blue sticks into the holes to, to take somebody else's stick, you know, <laughs> I forget what that's called. 
But anyway, that's what the Putney looked like, you know. So they were different, but the Putney came up with some pretty good oscillation sounds. But the ARP 2600 came up with beautiful sine waves and modulations that were better, um, that were just as good as all of Bob Moog's big uh, uh, modules. That And I, I actually helped his people put together one day they were putting together the modules at uh, in Sigma Sound for a project that was going on there. Um, I think it was for David Bowie, and uh, I helped them plug everything in and put all the different modules together, you know. Um, but the 2600 is by far my favorite uh, synthesizer. After that, uh, then you had because it, synthesizers back then were monophonic. That means you could only play one note at a time. You know what I'm saying? But then once polyphonic synthesis came out, um, like the Oberheim and uh, the Yamaha started coming out, then it became more like you could play them like keyboards, you know? And then they would come out with presets, which means all you had to do was hit a button if you wanted an organ sound or hit another button if you wanted drums, you know, that kind of thing. And um, but my favorite synthesizer by far uh, is and was the ARP 2600V vinyl. Oh, man, because I can remember seeing like old concert footage where you have one person that's like in the very, very back, maybe buried behind the keyboard player with this big rack of synthesizers. But I'm sure probably when those early models came out, a lot of the in-house studio musicians were saying, "Uh oh, this is about to be the end for us. <laughs> Well, I don't think it was so much with the synthesizers. I think it really happened at first and foremost with uh, when Bob Moog put out the um, mini Moog. And then uh, Lynn, uh, Lynn Walcott put out that uh, first early drum machine. And I think that kind of changed things because before uh, a rhythm section was a bass player, drummer, guitar player, couple of keyboard players, um, uh, maybe even, uh, um, uh, um, a, a, you know, different kinds of uh, two guitar players, you know. But when that, uh, that early drum machine came out and, and Stevie, Stevie had a, that one of the first Lynn Walcott drum machines and he gave it to me for a few months and I used it on a few things. And, and where I didn't use need drums. And I would use my 2600 or my mini move to play bass um, and, and my Oberheim to play some keys. You know what I'm saying? So I was cutting by 79, by 80, I had started cutting rhythm tracks on my own without having the band come in and cut the tracks. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I think those early drum machines really kind of changed um, and the mini Moog really kind of changed, especially the mini Moog. Like if you hear Parliament Funkadelic, right? Bernie Worrell played those mini Moogs. He replaced the bass. <laughs> you know, I think that's uh, uh, in a lot of cases on recordings. You know, now live, of course, they would always have a live bass player. But I'm just saying that, yeah, to a great degree, technology kind of kind of hurt the rhythm section business and in, in the recording industry but it's still alive it's still you know over the decades they people still go in with rhythm sections mm -hmm. yeah, and strings and horn yeah you can't replace that but if you look at the 
your early works, Herbie Hancock, the list goes on and on. All those people who said, hey, we're going to embrace what's coming because it's here. Right. We got to learn how to use it and learn how to do it well. So that way we're not pushed to the side when technology really comes to the forefront. Well, the one thing, my whole thing with synthesis was, wasn't so much to really um, uh, just focus on that. Don't forget, I'm an orchestrator and arranger. So what I would do is after I would write uh, my, my orchestrations or my arrangements for projects, I would say, can I add some synthesis sounds to this? You know, can I change the, the, the feeling of it with synthesis, you know? And I would do that on a lot of projects, especially the albums that were under my name and like the MFSB Mysteries of the World album and, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Now, the one thing that I think separated Philly International from Motown was that the great use of strings, that lush orchestral sound. And you didn't really hear that in Motown because Motown was rhythm heavy with the Funk Brothers and the in-house musicians there. So what was it like for you seeing a lot of the songs from Philly International being crafted up close and getting placements on those albums? Well, let me put it this way. As far as my arranging was concerned, I had two mentors. Uh, one was Bobby Martin and the other was Tom Bell. You know, I would talk to Tom about my string arranging and talk to Bobby about where I, what I should do with horns. You know, when I would write early on, when I was just starting, you know, writing arrangements like on the, uh, on the Anthony White album or that Philadelphia Freedom album on MFSB. And let me tell you something. Tom Bell and Bobby Martin are the, the most underrated arrangers in the history of the music business. If you listen to um, Me and Mrs. Jones, that's Bobby Martin. You know what I mean? He wrote that whole arrangement, you know, strings, horns, rhythm section. It's all charted together. Tom Bell, you listen to People Make the World Go Round or God Bless You, You Make Me Feel Brand New or Denise Williams, Silly, you know, uh, I mean, his arrangements really took it to another, another place. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, his stylistics works were amazing. You know, um, Tom Bell, I mean, most people don't realize that he started early with the, with the um, Delphonics, La La Means I Love You. That's Tom Bell, you know? <laughs> so I mean, he just doesn't get the, the credit he deserves. And, and I think that um, uh, those two arrangers, Bobby Martin and Tom Bell, really helped to define the sound of Philadelphia. There were other arrangers, don't get, get me wrong. Uh, there, there was uh, Jack Faith. Jack Faith was a terrific arranger. Um, and um, uh, Vince Montana you know, another terrific arranger, you know? So they all helped to uh, define the Philly sound in a way that no other label really did, you know? Um, that, you, you know, uh, I mean, if you listen to all those great arrangements that Tom, uh, that, that, um, that uh, Tom did for the artists that he did, the spinners, all that stuff on the spinners, you know, Sadie and, uh, games people play and um, uh, all the hits that he had on the spinners, you know, his arrangements are there to be heard, you know, 
and with Bobby Martin, all the great arrangements he did. What most people don't know about Bobby Martin was that he left PIR to pursue a, his own career as a producer. And so he did um, LTD's Back in Love Again. He did the Manhattans, Let's Just Kiss and Say Goodbye. That's Bobby Martin. <laughs> So uh, yeah, they they are they were my mentors, and and I think that you're right that they really defined helped to define the sound of Philadelphia during those years at Philly International Records. Yeah, because P- the PIR sound lush, smooth. I'm thinking about after five and maybe getting a nice beverage, non-alcoholic or alcoholic, depending on which way you swing, and getting a dance on with your lovely lady or whoever that you with. And we still feel the love and warmth of 70 soul to this day. I mean, if you look at the recent album that was just put out by Silk Sonic, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pac, it's pretty much a love letter yeah, to 70 yeah. soul. I, all they're doing is going back in time and recreating what we were doing in the seventies. Let me tell you, let me tell you a little story about Bobby, about Tom Bell. So anyway, Kenny sent me this, this track on uh, Teddy and he wanted me to write a string and horns for it, you know? So I had started writing string and horns <laughs> for it. And when I, I happened to be on the road at the time and, and I wasn't quite finished. And when I got back to Philly, I said, well, I'll be ready this week. Uh, we going in the studio. He said, Gamble said, oh, never mind. I got Tom Bell to uh, go ahead and write, <laughs> write the arrangement for it. And it was close the door. <laughs> Oh man, that's that's crazy. And Teddy in the Teddy he's referring to everybody is Teddy Pendergrass. Right. <laughs> but you know, I, I wrote my own arrangements on on um on Teddy's. It's like um I, I one of my favorite arrangements. I, I love the arrangement I wrote for TKO. It was pretty simple, but my favorite arrangement I did with Teddy was the duet I produced with him and Stephanie Mills and, and covered Peebo's song, Fill the Fire. That's my favorite arrangement I did with Teddy. Ah, oh, man. And Stephanie Mills, vocal powerhouse herself. And I'm sure by the time this airs, the versus battle between her and Shaka Khan will have did big numbers. And it just seems like that time period of music, 70s, 80s, you really had to come with your game. And it was very broad across the board and even you know artists such as yourself Gerald Albright Herbie Hancock Najee Stanley Clark Joe Sample I mean it was a wide range of everybody just taking a foothold and coming in and saying hey we're gonna go for hours and you as the audience had a choice to like what you like yeah yeah it was a wonderful time musically um i'm proud to be a part of it mm, now did you have any uh experience working with uh, phyllis hyman yeah i did um i did a couple of projects with phyllis um uh the song that i i i wrote and produced and synthesized for her that's probably most popular is living all alone uh, but that um Forever With You album, I reproduced all the tracks on that album. Uh, PIR was having a situation with CBS and all we could do was take her voice off of numerous tracks that were done by other producers and I had to reproduce them on her. Uh, Me and Phyllis were very close early on because I I still 
had to go out as a performer to promote my own albums, you know? And so I would open shows for Phyllis and we would go on the road together and we were, we were very close, you know, and, and uh, uh, she had her issues and um, she fought a hard and wonderful battle, you know, and I miss my friend. Yeah. Phyllis Hyman to me, one of the best female vocalists I've ever heard living all alone. One of my favorite cuts of hers. I mean, if you go on YouTube, folks, you will find her singing jingles for Welch's Grape Soda. Burger King, man, a Whopper never sounded yeah. so good after hearing Phyllis Hyman. <laughs> yeah, she was uh, something else. Phyllis was something else. Right. So the Jacksons, everybody knows, once they left Motown, they ended up signing over to, I believe it was Epic, I want to say. And then they ended right. up going over to work with Gamble and Huff and started to really come into their own because as we know, Motown runs a tight ship where if it's not coming from Norman Whitfield or the corporation, it ain't coming out. So what was that like for you kind of seeing their process of coming into their own, developing more and saying, hey, we want to crack at songwriting and producing and how they were able right. to bring their own sound that was different from what was pretty much already like a canned program over at Motown. Well, it was very wonderful working with them. Um, the real problem was, was that they were trying to redefine how they sound because Michael's voice ha had changed, was changing. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, he was no longer... Uh, a young adolescent or uh, even a young teenager. He was an older teenager and his voice had changed. And um, they really, they really kind of, kind of wanted to write their own material. And they had really liked the stuff I had been doing and, and asked Gamble and Huff if they could work close with me. And I wound up writing all their arrangements for whatever songs they did and um, helping them produce them and all that kind of stuff. And Tito would sit in on all the sessions as a guitar player. And he was telling me that, you know, the stuff they did at Motown, they would never allow, let him play get guitar on, you know, or to be a part of the session as a guitar player. So that was his first experience at Philly International, being a guitar player. And I was just so glad that we were able to help them stay relevant enough so that the transformation and the changes could happen um, for them later on, you know, especially um, uh, after they left PIR. But um, I think we kind of held them in a good place and they were able to transition well. Mm -hmm. And how about LaBelle? And when you get a singer like Patti LaBelle, knowing that she can sing the phone book and sing it well too but sometimes you got to be like okay we can't go too big not yet save it for here so how do you deal with that dynamic when you have such a power singer but the arrangement and the songwriting doesn't really call for that big power money shot note well you with patty you know i only did a few things with her as a composer producer uh, I did with her and Grover, I did the best is yet to come um, at Philly International. Um, I did um, um, If Only You Knew and Shoot Them On Sight. 
Um, and working with her was, was wonderful. She had so many ideals of how she could vocalize the song that I would normally just do like six uh, different takes on her. And then we would sit down together and edit the best pieces, <laughs> you know, that we say, oh, yes, let's use this piece here. Let's use this piece there, you know, to create one vocal. And it turned out, turned out great. You know, I wrote a lot more arrangements for other producers for her. Uh, but but that's the work I, I did with her. And of course, I used to go on the road and open some shows for her, you know. Mm. And you worked with MSB and you were a part of the very first Black Music Month celebration at the White House back in 78. So what was that like knowing that, OK, we're going to get something to officially celebrate the contributions of Black music in this country and how it's still going on to this day? Well, I was actually the music director for that at the White House. Um, I was conductor and music director. There were so many artists and so many charts we had to cover. Our rehearsal only lasted maybe 45 minutes. And then um, we had to wait for about an hour. And then the uh, president and his family came out. I had to start the show. And we did a couple of uh, MFSB songs and then started introducing the various artists that came on stage. And then it switched from an R&B show to a gospel show, <laughs> you know, and, and that, that was terrific too. And I got to meet some wonderful artists I hadn't met there. Um, uh, one of the great artists that I, I met there was Chuck Berry. And I talked to him about his career and how he had taken um, uh, blues to that, to that um, kind of um, a rocket, rockabilly style, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was a wonderful experience. And for us to be there at the White House on the grounds um, uh, during that first month, that was, um, that was just so wonderful. Gamble was a part of that as well as, as well as, as well as his uh, a, a wife at the time, Deanna. You know, they were both a part of that. And Ed Wright, I believe, was a part of creating that Black Music History Month, you know? Mm. And uh, how did you end up linking up working with Mr. Lou Rawls? Oh, wow. Let me put it to you this way. When I first met Lou, um, I, was, I was standing out in front of my office and, and Lou was talking with some people and he walked around the corner and he said, hey, how you doing? And I said, I'm fine, I'm, uh, my name's Dexter. I'm looking forward to, to working with you. And then he said, oh yeah, well, what you got? <laughs> so uh, we walked in my office and I said, look, here's my first idea. I knew you were coming. My first idea is, you know, there's a movie out there called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And there's a song on there called Pure Imagination. I would love to produce and arrange that for you. And he said, that's a great idea. I like that song. <laughs> so that's the first thing we did together. And let me put it to you this way. Our relationship got so close that even after he left PIR, he asked me to be the executive producer of his close company album. And my kids, uh, uh, because we were so close when he was here, we'd be with him. When I was out on the West Coast, I'd be with him and, and Cece. And um, my kids called him Uncle Lou. Wow. Yeah, and I did a lot, a lot of work with Lou. 
Wow. And we all know Lou Rawls' contributions to the music industry, outside the music industry with his annual telethons, raising money for the United Negro College Fund. And right. truly one and of the I kind. wrote that I wrote I wrote and I wrote that theme song. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. I wrote the theme song for that. He asked me to come up with something for his first show with the U UNCF. And, and I wrote that song. See, the more you know, yeah, buddy. So back in the yeah, yeah I got to hit yeah. that yeah, buddy, in there. That was Lou yeah, Rawls' that's trademark that's signature. Yeah, buddy. Uh, yeah, buddy. <laughs> so back in the 80s, hip-hop started to come in. And we started to see a lot of young producers going to their parents' and grandparents' record collections, picking loops here for drums, bass, or whatever instrumentation, and sampling. Now, what was your take when sampling first came in and everybody was saying, hmm, this is introducing me to a new generation, although unauthorized, but it is introducing me to a new generation, but we got to go through the proper channels first to make sure I get paid. Well, initially, um, when I first, the song that has been sampled most, uh, Sony says over a thousand times, is Theme from the Planets from my Life on Mars album. But unfortunately, the first four or five years it was being sampled, maybe even more than that, there was no licensing. So, you know, I couldn't get any royalties as the original writer, you know, of the song. And um, but finally, licensing and copyright control kind of kicked in and people, you know, if they wanted to sample something, they had to go ahead and get a license for it, you know. However, having said that, unfortunately for us, during that time, there was a lot of um, continued reaction and, and anger on the part of America about the civil rights movement. And schools in the urban communities were being literally dragged down to the ground, you know, and, and things like music, uh, sports and all of those kind of things were being taken away. And the only way that you could get into music by the late 70s um, was to go to a really good school outside of your neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? And to learn how to play an instrument, to learn theory, harmony and composition. That was the only way because black schools and in inner cities could not offer that, did not have the funding to offer that anymore, you know? And so I understand that you turn to what you can do to adapt, to, to enjoy, you know? So if you heard, heard a piece of music that you like, well, you used it on something you were doing because you, you certainly couldn't write it and you certainly couldn't afford to bring a band in or an orchestra into the studio to recreate it, <laughs> you know? So I get it. Mm, yeah, you had to use what you got, because if you think about late 70s, early 80s, and most urban locales, some of the areas look like third world countries as far as apartments being burned down. And look at the documentary, Let It Burn, to know about the move bombing that took place in uh, Philadelphia. And um, you see out of the ashes of all of that come this young rebellious art form that like rock and roll decades earlier was 40 young and it's still going strong decades to this day in Philadelphia, played a very vital role in hip hop, you know, with Will Smith, formerly known as the Fresh Prince, Jazzy Jeff, 
DJ Cash Money, Three Times Dope, Steady B, um, Schoolie D, Lady B, and their classic influential radio show, Street Beat on Power 99, and how this art form started on the foundation of those records from the 60s, 70s, 50s, so forth, and how, like I stated earlier, just introducing music to a newer generation and your records being a part of hip hop history. Yeah, I, I'm really proud. I've never really heard anything that was of mine that's been used that I don't like. I, I think, and, and they continue to this day, you know, um, Ghostface, J. Cole, they continue to use my music to this day, you know, and, and I'm very happy with that, that, um, that I, I'm a part of that in that way. Mm -hmm. Now, what was, what's your take on like the newer acts that came out of Philly in the 90s, 2000s, such as Boys to Men, Roots, the Philly Soul Movement with music, Jill Scott, Kendrick Family Spirit, Meryl LaRue, and Bilal? I think it was all absolutely wonderful, you know, and I would cross paths with them at, at times, you know. Um, and um, this one studio that my son was using uh, all the time when he was here, um, can't think of the name of it right now. Um, anyway, I would go down and write arrangements for my son at, uh, um, this particular studio, we would run into a lot of those artists. I didn't really work with them that much. I knew Kendrick um, a, a little bit, but having said all of that, I think they were doing wonderful with the whole neo soul movement. You know, I think that they did wonderful songs and that they came up with wonderful ideas and were able to reach their generation in ways that was in ways that created a new awareness. You know, I I I, I think music. Um, I really liked uh, Jill Scott. Oh my goodness, you know who didn't? <laughs> and uh, she's become quite an actress too. You know, and um, of course Will Smith and Jazzy Jeff, they were amazing. And um, and uh, yeah, I loved it all. Yeah, everything good come out of Philly. Philly's known more than just cheesesteaks. And then also, I can't let this lapse without mentioning Hall of Notes. Oh, well, Hall of Notes, you know, they were at Cameo Parkway at one time. And their little office, uh, I inherited, <laughs> you know, after they had left and, um, and moved away, their first single release, major single release was called, was a song called She's Gone. And that went pop. And once it went pop, oh man, it, that just exploded their careers. And they had hit after hit after hit. Yes, they sure did. Because you knew you were hot stuff when you got airplay on not only pop radio, but R&B radio as well. R&B radio too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. They're yep. wonderful. Yep. And they still perform to this day. Yep, if you can go out on the road, you got hits make great songs, you're going to forever be having money coming into the bank. Money coming into the bank tastes just as good like a fresh tasty cake because nobody bakes a cake like tasty cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah yeah so let's talk about current projects what current projects you have out now well i have a new album that's been released it's called the story of the flight crew to mars and one of the new singles is actually from that album is actually being released tomorrow and that single off the album is the piano of, and vocal of terry well i'm playing the keyboards and Terry Dexter is singing. Terry Dexter is an actress. Um, she can be seen on, a, on occasion on that TV show, A House Divided. And she has a terrific voice. I met her a few years ago. I was invited to perform at the uh, Fender Rhodes Festival. You know, Fender Rhodes is a keyboard that many, many artists worldwide use. And they were having a festival in LA and I got to meet her there and she sang uh, one of my songs on, on the show. And I asked her to sing a song on this album. And that song comes out tomorrow and it's called As One. And it's from my new album called The Story of the Flight Crew to Mars. And where can people find it? Well, they can find it. It's on digital jukebox records slash Sony Orchard. And they can find it on Spotify, iTunes, if they, you know, as far as streaming is concerned, all of those websites. But if they want an actual CD copy, <laughs> which, you know, still some people do have CD players and it has all the credits and, and pictures of everyone on the inside. And, you know, um, they can go to my website, DexterWansell.com and just keep going down and they can see where to get the uh, actual CD itself. All right, so be sure to go to his website to get that. And last question, I'm gonna get you out of here on this. Your thoughts on the current state of the music industry with streaming and how you witnessed the transformation from eight tracks, vinyl, cassettes, CDs, where vinyl is back in vogue again and how it just changes how people consume music in the business end of that as well well of course everybody wants to hear music you know they love listening to music um of course phone companies have made streaming available on your cell phones and headphones and um uh earplugs and all of that um and uh, the fact that vinyl is coming back i think is a, first it was like a collector's movement now it's becoming like a, a mainstay in some areas, you know what I'm saying, where people want the vinyl as opposed to streaming. Because don't forget, when you stream, you're not, you, you don't really have something in your hands. You know what I'm saying? And I still prefer CDs, but, you know, the manufacturers of CD machines have stopped making them. You don't get CD players in your car anymore, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I was working, um, my son, my son, uh, Andrew Pop Wansell, he uh, recently completed Ariana Grande's album. He was one of the producers on there. And he was telling me how, how to help her ticket sales. She was offering um, uh, her fans CDs during the show, you know, <laughs> and a lot of times that's the only way she could show CD or people can show CD sales is through selling them on their shows. You know what I'm saying? And that, and I think that that an unfortunate transition because 
I happen to love CDs, you know, to this day, I love being able to put it, I have an old van that I use and I love being able to put CDs in it that someone has sent me or that, that I still have in collection, you know, and taking it around with me. Sure, I use earbuds and use my cell phone and stream from iTunes and Spotify and stuff like that. And that's all good, but you don't get everything. You don't get like, when you open up a CD, you get pictures, you get writing that you can read, you get sometimes history and definitely you get credits, you know, who's doing what, you know what I'm saying? Streaming doesn't give you that, you know, and, I, and but album covers can still give you that, you know, but definitely CDs gave you all of that. And I, and I miss that. Yeah. I'm more of a vinyl guy and there's nothing like that crackling warmth when you put that needle <laughs> down on the vinyl, but I'm sure trying to reproduce that rich analog sound is harder now with digital yeah, because you're not really going to get that same sound. It is, but the, but the great thing about CDs was, you know, we had analog uh, capacitors in the studios that would help process the digital to analog for CDs and made CDs sound very good as far as in comparison to albums, it was very close, except it did, they didn't scratch. <laughs> they would skip, but they wouldn't scratch, you know? <laughs> yeah, I hate it when my CD skips. So kids, if you want to know what a CD is, <laughs> go find a Columbia House or BMG <laughs> ad where you can get 12 CDs for a penny. Don't tell nobody I ain't pay my penny. So um, before we close, do you have any thank yous, shout outs you want to give and also plug your social media? Well, yeah, I want to thank everyone that um, I've worked with in the past. Um, I've missed so many of my friends who are now gone, you know. Um, I want to thank Mark Anthony at Digital Jukebox Records for signing me up for this new album release. Uh, I want to thank all of the people that performed on this album and all of the albums that I've ever worked on throughout my career there have been incredible musicians and engineers and support uh, staff you know administrators that that helped me throughout my career you know and i really want to thank them and and at a time when uh, my career was just you know basically i was doing a few performances here and there my son who who is now a pop music producer you know, started bringing me back as an arranger to arrange uh, a lot of his projects, you know, uh, helped to arrange uh, um, uh, a lot of his stuff. And I want to thank him for that. And um, all the musicians I've worked with recently in London, um, um, I've done shows over there recently and, um, and all the musicians uh, near Philly, that I've worked with on shows around the, this part of the East Coast and um, just just everyone and especially my wife, Judy, because if it wasn't for her, I don't know if I'd still be doing this. Yeah, bonus question. Nights Over Egypt, Jones Girls, real quick. Nights Over Egypt? Um, um, by, by the Jones was, Girls. Um, yeah, I was... Um, I had written two songs and, and um, one uh, I was supposed to go to, to Peru and, and Egypt uh, to Machu Picchu and to Giza to see and, and to see and Luxor. And, um, and the red, it got red flagged 
this was many years ago and because Anwar Sadat had been assassinated and there were some issues as far as the U.S. allowing people to go into Egypt, you know. Um, so I wrote two songs, Clouds of Machu Picchu and Nights Over Egypt. Now, Nights Over Egypt, I, I was able to complete with the Jones girls and um, uh, synthesize and, and arrange and all that stuff. And I really like it a lot. And Clouds uh, of Machu Picchu, I wasn't able to complete. Oh, man. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I got that nice, nice over Egypt question out because I didn't want nobody to keep saying, why do you forget? I, well, there you go, people. And you can catch this interview. Well, what do you mean? Like I said, I wanted to make sure I got that question out before we concluded. So, people, you can catch this interview in audio and video format <laughs> wherever you stream and on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And also follow the Facebook group, facebook.com slash beyond the album cover. So ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big round of applause and a big thank you for Mr. Dexter Wanzel for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. Thank you once again, Mr. Wanzel, for your time and coming on the podcast. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me, Jarrell. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir.